we started with this idea uh, taken out of the Proverbs that there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but that way leads to death. Remember that? That there's this natural path that we just, it's, it's just like breathing. We don't even have to try. We just follow down that path. But that path, because it's rooted in our own intellect and awareness and understanding, that's just fleshly, it leads to death every time. It doesn't lead to good places. But we've also been learning over these last few weeks that there is a better way, a way that is ancient, as the prophet Jeremiah says. It's a path that was designed by God to lead us to life, to things that are good, things that last. Um, We started this series talking about the beginning of that path, resurrection life. That's the starting place. That's the, the entryway. It's a spiritual conversion from death to life that reorders all of life. And then we've looked at three areas of life in particular. That resurrection life reorients our approach to all the relationships that we have. And then it reprioritizes how we use the resources that God has entrusted to us. Jeff hit that last week. And then today, we're going to talk about refocusing our view of rewards. Now, with that spiritual conversion in mind, I want us to look together at a very, very familiar passage, but hopefully it will be an encouragement to you today as we talk about rewards. It's in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Again, very familiar words, but let's think carefully about this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can point to themselves and go, look what I did. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Such a beautiful, comprehensive statement about resurrection life and all that we've been talking about in this series. We can take from this that we have been saved from something and saved for something. By grace through faith, we've been saved from sin and all of its consequences. But not only that, we've been saved for good works which bring God glory. It's a great combination. Paul says, that those works, that we should walk in them. There's an expectation, an anticipation that if you've been saved from your sin and all of its consequences, that you should walk in the good works that God lays out for you, those beautiful opportunities that you have each and every day. So what motivates you to walk in good works? See, I've got a hunch that a lot of Christians literally wake up every day lacking motivation to walk in good works. I think most of us feel a sense of obligation, like should in the sense of I'm a bad person if I don't, I'm a sorry Christian if I don't, those kinds of thoughts, but still lacking the motivation to do it. And wondering, where do I find that? 
how do I wake up in the morning with this longing, this hunger, this thirst and know God and be about his mission? Where do I get that? I hope today will be a huge encouragement to you in uh, walking in good works. So we're talking about motivation and it is a murky world, isn't it? Like we all have these mixed motives. Some of them great, some of them not so great. Well, I wanna um, identify some practical sources for great motivation. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Here they are. Forgiveness of sin and deliverance from hell. How's that for a starter? That's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, if God did nothing else but forgave you and delivered you from hell, that's a literal thing. That'd be pretty motivating, wouldn't it? But he doesn't stop there. We are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, and enabled to walk in newness of life every single day. How about that? That could be motivating, couldn't it? We have been adopted into the family of God, the body of Christ, the community of faith. We're no longer orphans. We're in the family of Almighty God. If we have entrusted our life to Christ, that motivates me. And then, if, if all of that weren't enough, we have been assured of bodily resurrection entrance into heaven and eternity with God upon physical death or the return of Christ. See, when I recite those things, I get pretty motivated. And I wonder sometimes why those things aren't on the front of my mind when I wake up each and every day. I mean, we live in a broken, sin-wrecked world. We are broken people. We are flawed and bombarded by the world, the flesh, and the devil. All that's true. But listen, guys, I think if we rehearse these things over and over and over again, the, all of these things are unconditional. These are by grace through faith. They've just been given to you as a gift. I think we'll find some motivation. Having said that, there's another. We have been assured to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when you hear that, I'm guessing, if you're like me, the first thing you feel is fear. You think, all you heard, I think, was the word judgment. And then we think, oh gosh, I'm in trouble. Because I know how I live, I know what I think, I know what I do, I know where I go. I know all the things that if I'm standing for judgment, I'm in trouble. But I want you to think about that moment as this incredible opportunity for reward. That's what it's for. It's called the judgment seat of Christ or the bima. That's a, a Greek concept. Literally athletes would come before a council. So it's an athletic metaphor and they came there simply to, to be rewarded if they played according to the rules. That's the picture. And so the council there isn't there to punish. The council simply exists to reward faithfulness. 
That's all it's for. So if you didn't play according to the rules, you just don't get a reward. But that's it. That's what it's all about. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, we must all, no exceptions, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation, another synonym for reward from God. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So judgment isn't only to expose what we've done wrong. Judgment in this sense is all about celebrating what has been done right. What you and I have done in faithfulness to God. Now for me, there's something about the certainty of accountability and the possibility of reward that provides motivation to walk in those good works that God has for me. It honestly helps me to avoid complacency when I think about that day and I think that might be the purpose for God putting that in there. Now, everything that I've said so far, you may want to be encouraged by that, but I also have a hunch that you might have a, a trigger of suspicion or caution or concern because we're talking about motivation and, and wouldn't we like to think I think it's sort of altruistic, but wouldn't it be great if we were just always simply motivated by gratitude? Like we we're aware of all that God has done for us and simply because of our gratitude for that, we just always walk in good works. How many of you do that? Yeah, that's what I thought. And God must know that or he wouldn't have instituted the judgment seat of Christ. And again, not to catch us with all that we did wrong, but to lay out there the possibility of, I know you're thankful for what I've done for you, but I'm gonna go above and beyond that. And when you're faithful, when you're dependent, when you trust in me, I'm gonna reward you. You don't deserve it. I enabled you to be faithful and to do all that. I'm still going to reward you. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with giving up one thing in order to gain another? Don't we do that all the time? Or to say it differently, is there anything wrong with giving up one thing knowing that something better awaits? I sort of think that's how this life, this resurrection life is meant to be lived. See, we don't live for the here and now. We live for something later, something better, something good for us. So rather than just simply walking in a way that seems right to us when it comes to rewards, let's see what the Bible has to say about rewards. Let's think rightly about this. God put it in there. So let's get the most out of it that we can in terms of motivation. The Bible isn't silent on the subject. It's in a lot of places. 
So let's learn what we can. Now, let me say this first, just so that we're super clear. This is in your notes. You must be related to God before you can receive any rewards from God. God doesn't reward his enemies. He is gracious toward them. Uh, Mercy is extended all over the earth to unbelievers and believers alike. But we're talking about rewards and rewards are in in the context that we're talking about today. Those are issued after you die and go to stand before God. If you're not related to God, if you haven't entrusted your life to Christ, then rewards are completely irrelevant. But if you are related to God, they mean a lot. They mean a whole lot. And they always have in terms of God's relationship with his people. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy, God sets aside a nation called Israel. They are his covenant people. He has committed himself to them. And he lays out in Deuteronomy 28, blessings and curses. Just a construct that says, I'm gonna tell you how to live. I'm gonna show you what is best for you. If you align your life with that, you'll experience blessing. If you don't, you'll experience curses. Like it's that simple. Proverbs 13, two places, 13 and 21. Whoever despises the word, the instructions, the guidance that God gives about a blessed life, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. And then in 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. There is this idea that the way we live matters. And not only in some kind of, you know, ambiguous sort of way, but in a specific way as it relates to us. So let's refocus our review, our view of rewards with two key passages. Hebrews 11.6 and 1 Corinthians 3. Hebrews 11.6, 1 Corinthians 3. We'll work through these quickly. First of all, Hebrews 11 is, uh, is about what? What's the big word there? Faith, right, okay? Let's see what the writer of Hebrews does with faith and rewards. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God, For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. First of all, that he exists. And look at the second thing, that he rewards those who seek him. Now, there could have been a whole lot of things put in there, right? Think about all the doctrine and theology, all the stuff in the world that we could possibly find that would be necessary to believe in order to draw near to God. But God says, you gotta believe that I exist and you gotta believe that I reward those who seek me. Isn't that interesting? Now, faith is first. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. In 11.1, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then God-pleasing faith believes those two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Believing that way is how one draws near to God. Have you ever thought about 
the possibility that dismissing rewards would stand in the way of your intimacy with God. That seems to be what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Revelation 22, catch this. Here's what God says about himself. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we think of God coming in judgment and that only being about punishing sin, but he says nothing about punishing sin right there. He's eager to come and reward you for trusting in him, to living dependently upon all the resources that he's given you. It's a beautiful, motivating picture. So in light of Hebrews eleven six, one who pursues God through faith has the assurance that their seeking him will result in good to themselves. I'm gonna call this, this may be, I don't know, confusing or something, but righteous self-interest. That sounds like an oxymoron. I don't think that we're supposed to be completely disinterested in our good. I think we're supposed to care about what's good for us and I think we do that very naturally. But this is righteous self-interest. This is meaning that I want good for me right in alignment with what God intends, what he says, how he says that it's found. Vicki Kraft, women's pastor for Northwest Bible Church, great phrase that she has here for this passage. Faith obeys God, pleases God, and will be rewarded. Faith, your faith, it obeys God, and it pleases God, and don't forget, it will be rewarded. That's pretty encouraging. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 describes how this takes place. He lays out an interesting process at that judgment seat of Christ. He says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He was talking about the early church and the leaders in Corinth. Let each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment seat of Christ day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So notice a few things. First of all, Paul acknowledges enabling grace. That's the starting place. Once again, this whole idea of resurrection life, God's goodness toward us, that's where we start. We don't get to take credit We don't beat our chest and pat ourselves on the back. It's God's enabling grace to build. But then he urges anyone who would choose to build to take care, 
to do so carefully, which must mean it's possible to be careless, right? So we can choose how we want to approach this idea of building up the body of Christ. The level of care that we take in our building will be revealed in what Paul calls the last day, that day before Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Now, all of our works will be tested by so-called fire. Now, I don't know if that's literal or figurative, but it doesn't really matter. It just means that you and I, everything that we do will be tested. What has been done grounded in our faithfulness to Christ, it's gonna remain and it's gonna look like gold, silver, and precious stones and it will warrant reward. And here's the deal, guys. It's not like we're, we're pulling, you know, pulling something off with God, like talking him into something. It's like literally he's standing there with reward. I don't even know exactly what that is. I just know he has it. He's eager to give it. And he's saying, if your works are like gold and silver and precious stones, I'm gonna lay it on you. You got it. I'm glad to give it. But if your works are burned up, incinerated, what that means is they were not grounded in your faithfulness to Christ. They were motivated by something else. That's what it is. That, that second thing means suffering loss. Now, some people have a question about how do you suffer loss in heaven? I don't know that I'm gonna have a satisfactory answer for you. I just know that's what the text says. Now, we're gonna talk a little bit about what that, that moment might be like, what suffering loss might mean, but I don't think anybody can be dogmatic about this. What's very clear is that this judgment isn't about justification, okay? We're saved by grace through faith, but it is very real and limited to our rewards for faithfulness as Christ followers. Now, one of the most encouraging things is I've been studying rewards and thinking about this day that awaits all of us. I, I thought this, rewards reveal the attentiveness of God. Now think about that for a minute. Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And my natural tendency is to think of that only in terms of God catching me when I do stuff wrong. But God is just perhaps even more interested in catching you and I doing something right. That's a good father. Like what father wants his kids to mess up, right? No, a father longs for his children to do the right thing. And then a good father wants to celebrate that. I think that's the idea here. And he can't reward what he doesn't see and know. So he has to be attentive all of the time. Now, when might that be an encouragement to you and me? How about that time when all of life is falling to pieces, when you are suffering, when you are tempted, when you are persecuted, when you have lost everything and you're tempted to think, God has abandoned me. 
He doesn't see and he doesn't care. Rewards tell you he never sleeps, he never slumbers, he sees it all. And the reason he sees it all is because he wants to reward your faithfulness, your perseverance, your endurance. He wants to celebrate that with you as you trust that he sees. Now, there are a variety of rewards outlined in the scriptures. I'm just going to give you some titles here and then you guys can do some of your own research. But here are some of the references that I found. There is a promise of crowns. There's actually a variety of crowns that are mentioned. There's a promise of heavenly treasure. You know, you can lay up treasure on earth or you can lay up treasure in heaven. There's promises of commendations, approval, affirmation for having been faithful, like well done, good and faithful servant. That's a reward. A promise to overcomers, those who have endured some even unto death. There's a commendation for them that is unique to that. And then there's promises of special responsibilities and authority related to how one has lived in this world and how that translates into the next. So here's the big question. How much of what God offers you in the next life do you want? That's really the decision that you and I are making. And God is saying that you actually can influence that. It's not set, it's not dictated. God is inviting you into this dynamic relationship with your good father and he says, I have all kinds of things that I want for you but you're gonna determine how much of that you actually receive and experience by the decisions that you make today. Is that motivating to you? Is it exciting for you to think about what heaven might be like? If you're wondering, uh, Randy Alcorn has written a tremendous book on heaven. And, And one of his big ideas is, God says he's gonna bring a new heaven and a new earth. Wouldn't it be strange if that were absolutely nothing at all like what we experience here? It would make more sense that if it's called a new heaven and a new earth, that there would be some similarities, only it would be without sin. We're led to understand that our choices in this life will determine some aspects of what we experience in the next. The Bible doesn't seem to describe heaven as this static place where just everything and everybody are always the same in every way. It seems to say that there's some great diversity there. And the two differences related to rewards that I have come across are two things, our capacity for joy and our scope of responsibility. Those are two things that that I think we can consider in a concrete sort of way, that you and I will have some capacity for enjoying all of the fullness of heaven and that that capacity is somehow determined by how we live here. Secondly, like the parable of the steward, there seems to be some relationship between how we handle the responsibilities that we're given here and the responsibilities that will be given in heaven. 
and we will be given responsibilities in heaven. That seems clear. The, the 12 apostles were told that they were going to be rulers over Israel. They're judges. That's a responsibility. Our faithfulness to walk in the good works that God has for us here seem to secure greater responsibility and greater capacity to enjoy the goodness and glory of God in heaven. Now, if that's a new thought for you or something that you're wrestling with, great. Put it to the test. Get in the word and see what it has to say about those relationships. I think there will be some distinctions. Now, what will be missing in heaven is any sense of pride or envy or resentment. See, we compare ourselves to one another here and we're, we're kind of naturally thinking, well, why didn't I get that? Why did they get that? Why is my life so hard and why do I have so little? I, that's how we naturally think. But in heaven, that will be completely absent. I think we'll feel tremendous joy over whatever we see everybody else receiving in terms of their joy and responsibility. Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards uh, in the 1700s says this about this distinction and how we might relate to it. He says, the saints are like so many vessels of different sizes cast into a sea of happiness where every vessel is full. So every vessel will be full, but not every vessel will be the same size. This is eternal life for a man ever to have his capacity filled. So once again, how much capacity do you want to have in heaven for joy and the responsibilities God has for you? As you ponder that, let's come back to the question of motivation that I asked earlier. Is it wrong to faithfully walk in good works in hopes of receiving reward for your faithfulness when you get to heaven? It seems like we shouldn't want that. But hasn't God cultivated that hope with his word? Hasn't he said, I've got a reward for you. It's waiting and it's up to you. However you decide to live here, that will dictate what happens later. So it seems like God's saying, it's fine for you to be faithful and obedient and full of gratitude and still want, hope for, look for a reward later. Now, a couple of things. Jesus is our greatest treasure. I wanna make sure nobody gets out of here misunderstanding what I'm saying. Jesus is our greatest treasure. Paul writes in Philippians, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus is our greatest treasure. Not only that, God is, God's glory is our greatest aim. Paul writes again, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus is our greatest treasure. God's glory is our greatest aim. But isn't part of our motivation for pleasing and glorifying God that doing so is best for us? How many of you would seek to please God and glorify him if you knew it would ruin you now and forever. 
right? It's kind of strange, isn't it? No, we believe that by following Christ, by being faithful and obedient, by doing what he tells us to do, we have to have believed that that's best for us. It's righteous self-interest. It's believing that God wants what's best for us and he can deliver. That's motivating to me. Randy Alcorn says this, when you faithfully give or you could say serve or love, like fill in the blank, it's not only for the glory of God and the good of others, though those would certainly be good enough reasons. When you give, it is for your good too. Like the law of gravity, the law of rewards operates constantly, even when we give it no thought. And maybe that's a strategy of the enemy, is that we would give rewards no thought. And as a result, we would fall short of all of the things that we could do here that would beautifully reward us there. Paul clearly understood all of this that I've talked about this morning. And this is what I'm going to finish with in 2 Timothy 4. Here's what he says at the end of his life. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, which he, he understands he is about to be martyred. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Put it in Ephesians words. I have done the good works that God had for me. Henceforth, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all, to all who have loved his appearing. That's a promise. The upside down kingdom of God pays dividends in eternal reward. Whether we believe it or not, like it or not, think about it or not. And that future reality is meant to motivate us in the best sort of way along with our gratitude, we're not leaving that out, but let's add to it this amazing motivation to live extraordinarily faithful lives, confident that God sees and he will reward later. I want you to take a minute. This was a lot for me to take in <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. And I imagine that it is a lot for you to take in as well. I want to challenge you to go back to the scriptures. Don't take my word for it. Study it for yourself and see what the scriptures have to say about this vital area of resurrection life. Take a moment, ask the Lord just to bring something to mind. One takeaway for today as it relates to rewards. Um, just ask the Lord to cement that in your mind for today and to prompt some sort of response in you going forward. Pray about that for just a moment.